You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Welcome, everybody. This is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio for the 18th of May, 2021. Thank you all for tuning in. And <laughs> this is going to be an unusual show, everybody. Uh, for those who are listening live, there probably is not going to be many because uh, we are testing tonight on uh, Sermon Audio, and it's going to be, hopefully it'll go well, and um, I'm going to try this out in a couple of different platforms. <laughs> it might be a complete disaster. Whatever the case, there will be a podcast, and that's the main thing. Um, attempting, attempting, and I've never done this before in my life, uh, to sermon audio. This is apparently going to go through Facebook and YouTube as well. So um hoping to, well, hopefully that goes well. I It may not. And uh, we may have to do something different. Um, I don't know if it is going to be on Facebook. We'll, we'll check that out. Um, yeah, I'm for a while. Yeah, I don't think Facebook is working. But I do like, I'm kind of growing more to like Sermon Audio and Perhaps it'll be an audio-only program from now on because I just think it's it's easier to manage. But we'll try one more video program tonight. Uh, I think it's gonna go. I think it's gonna go through YouTube tonight. But we'll, we'll we'll play it by ear. Okay, on tonight's program. Before, so you haven't seen me in a long time. Anybody has been listening to the program before? This is the first program in. Ooh, I think it's about, about six, seven months. I have. I'm almost finished college. I finished my exams uh, there recently, passed them all, praise God, and um, hoping to finish soon uh, my placement at the moment by God's grace. And that's been wonderful, learning a lot in the congregations where I'm serving at the moment. And that will be going until the end of June. And and if you are watching this and you're seeing me going over in the page hopefully this is going on youtube but i think we might find this out after the fact because this is a very very different experience i kind of yeah i think this is actually going off on youtube lord will <laughs> is going out on uh, youtube and uh, i'll see if i can get the chat room on youtube up there um that way people can... Oh, yeah, that, 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 that seems to be... Uh, that seems to be working. Okay, so... Yeah, hopefully it'll, be, hopefully it'll be fun tonight. Hopefully it'll be fun. So... A... A dear sister in the Lord, a member... When was it? About a year ago, told me that she enjoyed that I was doing the Psalms. So I'm going to continue doing the Psalms. We, we started doing the Psalms. When was this... At the beginning of the lockdown was the last April. (laughs) 
And um, yeah, so so there was different psalms we went through. Trying to encourage you to go through the Psalter, to sing through the Psalter, and be blessed by the Psalter. Again, I have the the page in case anybody's wondering. I do have YouTube open. Again, the, the main page, again, I might just decide no more YouTube after tonight. I'm not too sure. But um, the main page from for live will be sermonaudio.com, and it might just be audio. I'll just go to the, the, the Megiddo Radio page for more details. Howdy there, Bridger, in uh, the chat room and YouTube. And I, yeah, if it goes well tonight, if no more hiccups and anything else, because there's equipment here I haven't touched <laughs> in seven months. Literally. And I've been finding cables that have been disconnected. And how did that get in there? And uh, yeah, it's been, uh, I haven't touched a cable or anything to do with anything podcast related in a long time. Um, So, okay. Psalm 32, I'm going to read through this and hopefully be a blessing unto your soul. After that, what we're going to do tonight, again, tonight's more of a more of a, again, a beta test, just see if everything's working. And uh, sometimes you don't really know when you're getting back into a program, if everything's still working and if your equipment still works. And, uh, and so that's basically what tonight's going to be, but I am going to be talking about a topic that I've been looking at. It was a topic for a research project this year on the keys of the kingdom of God. And I think it's um, a vital issue for us to understand, not just with regards to the typical stuff you might think of church government, you know, with regards to Roman Catholicism and all that kind of thing, you know, the keys of Peter and Matthew 16, 18, but there's much more to to it than that. And unfortunately, it's only been understood as that um, by many. And I've been so blessed by going through that topic of the keys of the kingdom and by God's grace, I hope to share that with you all. Okay, Psalm 32, before we get into our main topic, we're going to read Psalm 32 and just make a few comments on it, and may the Lord lead us, and we'll just begin with prayer. Almighty and eternal God, Father in heaven, we pray, Lord, that you be with us, and that your face will shine upon us as we read your precious, holy, and infallible word. Please guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 32, let us hear God's word. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. Through my groaning all the day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. 
I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. You do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy, shall surround him. And it talks there, may the Lord bless the reading of his word. It talks there of the blessing and the joy of forgiveness. And I pray that the scribes all who are listening to this program today, that you have found forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Okay, our main topic today. Something going wrong with YouTube, but oh well. Yeah, it seems to be going okay. Okay, so for tonight, we're going to be starting the topic on on the keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom. Now, again, we might think of this topic as only something with regards to Peter and Matthew 16, 18. And a couple of years ago, I would have as well. Of course, you think of church government largely due to the fact that it's not discussed a lot today. Again, if you do Google the word keys of the kingdom of God or anything else like that, you'll, what do you find? You find prominent Roman Catholic apologists debating with prominent Protestant apologists. And that's kind of as far as it goes. And of course, because it has massive implications for what we think of the papacy is vitally important with that regard, but uh, it's much more than I hope to bring out today and possibly one or two other more programs on top of this, that it's far more than just apologetics. It's far more than just beating the other side, as it were. It's far more than that. And uh, it has a practical, lived out, important, significant, as does many, as do many doctrines. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for proof for instruction and righteousness. That the man may the man of God may be perfectly thoroughly furnished unto all good works. It's not just there to fill our heads. The scriptures aren't just there to to satisfy our intellectual curiosity. It's far more than that. The Puritans would talk about and Joel Beakey, who who I would have gotten a lot of my understanding of the Puritans. Um, he did an excellent book with Mark Jones, a Puritan theology, Doctrine for Life, big, thick uh, tome, and he's written many books on that. Um, he would talk about how the Puritans would talk about head, heart, and hands. So even with this Doctrine of the Keys, so much of it is, you know, it's big. We'll think of... Um, something disconnected there, will think so much of the, the debate with Roman Catholicism, understanding that it is not just Peter who gets the keys, 
it's more than that. Um, unfortunately, I'm having audio problems here. So if you see me looking <laughs> kind of confused, that is why. So, so we think of the t- the doctrine of church government. We think of that. We think of that topic. I'm just gonna. We think of that topic, and there is. A whole history of writings that took place during the 17th century. And during the 1640s especially, during the 1640s, um, lots was written. The Westminster Assembly was one of the main fruits of that time. Um, much of it defending what we call the Presbyterian side of the keys of the kingdom. But also there were on the, there were, let's face it, during the Westminster Assembly, during the 1640s, during that great tumultuous time, lots of factions and people of different views were even at the Westminster Assembly. You had independence, you had, you had lots of different views. Now, even back then, when it comes to church government, so we'll talk about church government for a second, because that obviously ties in with the keys of the kingdom, the power of the kingdom, the power of binding and loosing. I think the most people today, I haven't done a survey or anything, like that, but if you ask most people today, even Presbyterian denominations, if you ask them, is there any particular church government that has been prescribed in the, in, in the scriptures? And most people would probably lean towards not really having a conviction in the area and really leaning towards, well, if they do like Presbyterianism, it's more because it's pra- practical and it works and they like it and they don't really see any reason to change it. But we need to see it from the scriptures. And I believe by a, a well-rounded understanding of the keys that we would come to an understanding that it, it is biblical and it is something that we should follow. Now, just before I get into it, by Presbyterianism, I don't mean necessarily all laid out. You know, you got session, presbytery, synod, etc., you know, possibly general assembly. Not that I'm against that, but I'm talking about what does the Bible lay out. The Bible lays out principles that says, yes, these things are wise and different layers that we'll have in church government um, from the light of nature and things like that in different periods. But let's purely think about what does the Bible teach? What are the keys? What what is What power does it have with regard to church discipline? And also, and also what is the power of preaching? <laughs> the power of preaching. Um i get into it later, but that authority from the pulpit, that it is, if it is according to God's word, if it's not in contradiction to God's word or anything like that, 
that it has the authority delegated by Christ himself. So we need to kind of realize, look, the vast majority of people believe that there's no particular form of church government, and we need to kind of seek through these things and realize that, yes, there is a form of church government spoken about. Um, again, just remind anybody who's listening on YouTube, I don't know how well the YouTube stream is actually holding up because, again, this is going through Sermon Audio. And if you want to listen to the mainstream, it's megiddoradio.com forward slash live. That's megiddoradio forward slash live. And hopefully we're going to have one program a week, uh, Tuesday night, 830. Um, that might change though. So let's now think of not what works, what not what we think what works. But what are, what are keys? Let's just make it very, very simple. Keys. Um, we don't think that this doctrine is very important, do we, today? Generally speaking. You'd have to read a lot of older writers and often to, to find out about this topic. But let's just think of keys of your house. What do keys of your house do? The keys allow people in or keep people out. The keys, you have keys in your house, you, you maybe lend them to people. Um, and if you lose them, <laughs> you know that there's a problem. But you, you don't have your keys, you can't get into the house. If you don't have your keys in your car, you can't drive. So what are the keys? Let's just think about it very, very simply. They're a symbol of power. And they're a symbol of granting access they allow some in and they keep others out. In Revelation 1.18 says this, I am the one who lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Revelation 3.7 And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things says he who is holy. He who is true. He who has the key of David. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. So that's just the first thing. Think about that. The keys of the kingdom. Before we even get into it. And ultimately, who has the keys of... Hades is a place of death. You know, hell translated, different things. But... Who has the keys of death and hell? Jesus. Jesus has the keys. Ultimately, Jesus has the keys. And any, any keys that are to be exercised by the church, by the eldership, is delegated by Christ. But he's the ultimate authority. He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. And we also have to realize that any authority that's legitimate authority, if it is authority, it must be in conformity with the person who delegates the authority. And even when we're thinking of today with regards to COVID, when to, when to disregard the government, when to follow 
when to say, oh, this is a Romans 13 moment, or this isn't a Romans 13 moment, or whatever the case may be. Is this in conformity to the commands of Christ? Especially in the church. Especially in the church. So, again, it is Christ's authority, and it is delegated to the church. So, let's look at the big major one. We talked about it earlier. Talking about, um, are we going for time? Yeah, 20 minutes. Program tonight might not be exactly an hour. We'll see how things go. Again, a lot of testing going on, and I... Yeah. Yeah, I was I was eager to try out... Try out um, Sermon Audio. I don't know if there is a chat on Sermon Audio. I have no idea. So... Not sure about that. I'm sure I'll find out probably after the program blows up. But the big area of con when we think of the keys, the immediate places, Matthew 16 verses 18. We're going to read Matthew 16 verses 16 to 19 for context. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not, shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed. In heaven. So, okay, Peter's been given the keys. You are Peter on this rock, I will build my church. And what does this mean? Welcome. <laughs> I think I know who that Sean is. Um, welcome anybody on YouTube. So, um, let me know. I don't know if it sounds good uh, because again, I've, it's going through sermon audio and I don't know if going through one platform and then to another, it might, this whole thing might look like a disaster. Not sure. I don't know what the audio sounds like. So if somebody could let me know in the chat, that'd be wonderful. Um, so what is the authority given to Peter? Is it this autocratic, dictatorial, tyrannical power that Rome thinks? And let's face it, the way Rome thinks of this uh, power given in the keys that because Rome has decreed it, well, therefore it must be, well, that's the, the view in heaven. So we'll look at this. Um, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in will be bound in heaven. So there's that misunderstanding of the text there. So oh, you bind it on earth, therefore uh, we bound in heaven, right? And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And before we get into the other things, 
the question is this. In what capacity was Peter given the keys? Was he given the keys as the first papa, as Rome would believe, or simply as, or as a minister of the gospel? Or just simply as a believer? More, and that last view would be more towards historic congregationalism. It's not to say that every single congregationalist would necessarily agree with that, but that would have been older views, especially um, people like John Cotton. For the Roman Catholic view, St. Peter is the rock upon which the church is built is crucial. But even if we just took this text by itself, Matthew 16, 18, even in English, we'll get into the Greek in a second, the argument is extremely weak to say that Peter is the rock. So let's just look at it. Just say, for argument's sake, could it be possible exegetically? You could look historically, the claim by Rome that history is on their side, all this guy, history is not on their side. Oh, thank you very much, brother, for letting me know about the sound. Ah, it's Benjamin. Excellent. Welcome. Um, so, welcome everybody in the chat. Feel free to say hi. Feel free to ask questions. Um, <laughs> uh, if, if it goes well tonight, I promise I'll do it again. Uh, we'll, we'll see how things go. Um, and I mean the YouTube part. Whatever happens, sermon audio will, Lord willing, will Lord willing continue. So, Matthew 16, 18, right? Matthew 16, 18. So, just taking the English by itself, if you were to say Peter was the rock, what happens to Peter not too long after that? He is rebuked for following Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Not a very strong foundation. Also, again, let's look at, now let's look at the Greek. You are Peter. Petros, Petros, and that is kind of like a little stone, Petros, Peter, you are Peter, a little stone, and on this rock, Te Petra, a large bedrock, that's what kind of what that word means, on this rock, on this large bedrock, kind of foundation rock, I will build my church, that's what the original Greek is saying. You are Petros, a little stone. It's, it's a play on words. Peter. And Jesus gave him this name. Simon Peter. His name was Simon. He gave him the name Peter. You are Peter, little rock. And upon this rock, large, kind of a large bedrock, and the word is Petros and Petra. Little rock, big, big large bedrock, I will build my church. Jesus is saying, after Peter's confession of faith in Christ, that he is Peter, literally in Greek, little isolated stone. That's kind of an isolated, all by yourself stone. And upon this large box, something akin will go under the ground. Christ himself will build his church. It's and given that, because of the play on words, it is extremely unlikely that Peter 
is the rock. And we should not jump to the conclusion that Peter's the rock in question. Actually, the fact that it is a play on words and it's like, you are Peter and upon this rock of a different Greek word, Peter's not the bedrock. Peter's not the foundation grammatically or anything else. Now, I know some Roman, Catholic, uh, Roman Catholicism believes, I think that Matthew, or at least some, argue, I don't know if all of them argue, but that it's written in Aramaic, so therefore, the original was written in Aramaic, so therefore, well, what the Greek play on words with Petros and Petra, little isolated rock with large bedrock, eh, that doesn't matter. That's That's been the argument I've heard sometimes. I can't say that's all the time. All the time. So, given the context, it doesn't point towards Peter. It really points towards either Peter's confession or Christ himself. No, I think it's Peter's confession. His faith in Christ. Now, really, both are really the same, point towards the same rock, by the way. Faith is a gift from God. We cling to the rock, Jesus Christ. So, the if the if it is faith in Christ, it's still the same foundation upon Christ. It is that same empty hand that lays upon the one who saves. Both really have the same bedrock foundation, and also the word Petra often can refer to Christ in the scriptures. It refers to Christ in the scriptures in uh, was First Peter two verse eight. So extremely weak. Just taking Matthew sixteen eighteen by itself, not having gone, we haven't even gone to the other texts yet, and we haven't even thought more about what the keys actually are. Again, what are the keys? Again, we we. We read in our English Bibles, and we kind of maybe read it in such a way that, oh, whatever these keys, whatever these, whatever this authority is, well, if Peter exercises it, well, it, that is, heaven's going to follow almost. But th that is, again, that's not what the, the, the verse is saying. Uh, the term, so for Matthew 16, 18, I don't want to lose anybody here. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth, let's just take that term by itself. Whatever you bind on earth, that word is esti didomenon. So, and it also can be translated. It also can be translated, will have been bound. Some some translations actually have it in the in the in the corner. Another way you could possibly translate this, it, it's, it's difficult, I'm not saying it should be translated this way, but you could translate it this way, which would give you probably a better sense of the what, what is happening here. Will have been bound, could be translated that way, or, and also will have, will be loosed, could also be translated, will have been loosed. It's the, it's the future perfect. And whenever the perfect is used in Greek, it's kind of got a, it can have a very much a present aspect to it. So that's 
often why I, I think our translations, I'm not a, look, I'm not a, I'm not an expert on this side of it, but that is, I think the reason why a lot of translations will, will kind of go with that future aspect will be bound, will be, you know, it's more of an immediate, but getting into the other way it could be translated will have been bound. Let's put that into our text and just think about what whatever you bind, whatever has been bound on earth, will have been bound in heaven. So there's the idea of whatever has been bound on earth will have already been bound in heaven. Think of it this way. Heaven, the authority comes from heaven. The authority comes from the, the courts of heaven. If, if, if the earthly authority goes in against that, that's not authority. That's rebellion. That's not an exercise of the keys. So it is heaven first and then earth. And how do we know what heaven says in this, the scriptures? The scriptures. So there's, there's the sense of will have been bound, will have been loosed. It will have already happened. Heaven first and then earth. Not heaven following whatever the dictates of the successor of Peter. Now, we know if, I suppose, if enough people have studied the history that there is no clear succession of papal authority. The papacy is really something that really developed in later centuries, somewhere between the third and the sixth century, but I digress. The authority must be in conformity. It, the keys are to follow heaven's own court and rulings. The one with this delegated power must follow the decrees from the king of heaven. And we also have to think about the terms binding and loosing. What does that mean? The binding and loosing in terms of gift of sin, it depending on the, the, the courtroom judgment of heaven, the forgiveness of sin offered to the sinner, who needs to be loosed, who needs to be set free from the bondage of this sin, who needs to be set free from this guilt. The hearer must come to trust Christ. So the exercise of the keys as well is preaching. Peter, in Acts chapter 2, exercised the keys in preaching. And all those who repented and trusted in Jesus Christ, by those keys, were loosed from the guilt of their sin. Those and only those are loosed from their sin. To a person who repents and trusts in Christ, the kingdom of God is open. To the person who rejects the preaching of the gospel, who hardens their heart and doesn't trust in Christ, the kingdom of God is shut. The kingdom of God is shut. So we'll go on now to... Um, Very good, very good. Welcome, anybody. Yeah, there's somebody in the chat room asking, what if they found an early Aramaic manuscript? Yeah, I meant to actually say that. Um, 
Yeah, just say you hypothetically you found an early Aramaic manuscript that could well have been a translation. There are thousands upon thousands of Greek manuscripts, and there's scant evidence that all we have is what the Peshitta, which is an early translation, second century. You have the old Latin Vulgate, I think second or third century Latin. And um, you don't really, I'm not aware of, there's just no evidence for it whatsoever. There's the odd quote from a church father here and there, but beyond that, there's really, really scant evidence. It, it's kind of like, you, know, you what if, you know, people say, what if certain evidence turns up? Well, yeah, well, we'll, we'll deal with it if, if the evidence does turn up, but People ask that question because the evidence doesn't exist much of the time. Um, okay, Matthew 18. So this is just dealing with Matthew 16. Before we even get into Matthew 18, Matthew 18 verses 15 to 20, which really is more focused on another aspect of the keys of the kingdom, which is um, church discipline, binding and loosing, closing to unrepentant sinners, opening to repentant sinners. Now, I must point out that there's, okay, elders and people making decisions, those people who are, who should be allowed access to the, the sacraments, all that kind of stuff, are fallible. Are fallible. And that, this is always going to be the way. But, we are trying to, when we go to the scriptures, trying to find out while we'll, we'll often fail in our application at times, but that can't be the standard. It, the standard must be, what does the courtroom of heaven say? And we can't go against that. And how do we know what heaven says? Not because the Pope says so. We know what heaven says because of the scriptures. And it's not right exercise the keys if it's contrary to the word of the living God. So um, now let's go on to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. Moreover, if, you're, if your brother sins against you, go and tell his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Surely I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that you ask, that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So, again, we have the concept of binding and loosing. Binding and loosing to apply to, and, and applies to all the apostles here. And I don't want to just ditch the whole idea of, I know it's massively important, but it's not the only thing that it's important. And again, 
we have to deal with it. It's there in the scriptures. It's it's something that's believed by what a billion plus people in the world, billion plus Roman Catholics that that this is okay. How many of them actually do believe this? But that in what sense does Peter have a primacy? And if Peter has any primacy, what is it now? If Peter has any primacy, it's clear from the text here that he's a primacy among equals. There is no sense, either in the Council of Jerusalem or anywhere else, for that matter, that he is the one who exercises it in terms of authority. It's, if anything, it's, well, first among equals. Nothing more. And there's nothing to suggest that the keys given to Peter or for any other minister, for that matter, a minister of the gospel, or elder, elder in church government, is in any way different. Is in any way different. Because it's talking about forgiveness of sin. Which is beautiful when it ties in with, we're reading from Psalm 32 at the beginning, of the forgiveness, the joy of the forgiveness of sin. But there's nothing in the text here, or the previous text, is just that the keys are in any way different from the keys of the rest of the apostles. So, okay. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, a brother in the chat room says that that last verse... Um, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Yeah, it's commonly misunderstood, and I think the context needs to be considered very, very carefully in how we understand that. Now, so we have here the function of church discipline. Uh, the the fun another function of the keys, binding and loosing, is not just it's not just preaching. Pre preaching is a, an exercise of the keys, but also church discipline is an exercise of the keys as well. Church government is an exercise of the keys. The way we understand the keys is how we understand well what makes up that church government, that authority given by Christ. The keys are in possession of those in charge of church discipline. I hope we can just see that from having read that. Those in charge of church discipline are in possession of the keys. Um, it's not for one person. Uh, in fact, if you go back to so-called Pope Gregory I, I don't know if he'd like that title, but um, he said back in... I think it was the early 7th century that he said that any person who takes the title of universal bishop is the forerunner of Antichrist. So anyone who takes that title would be the head over other people, universal bishop in, in regards to everybody else. Back then there were patriarchs and all this kind of stuff, yes, but at that time Gregory was like, <laughs> that's forerunner of Antichrist kind of stuff. Um, and if you want to see more on that, you see uh, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. John Calvin actually talks about that in Book 4, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 7, Paragraph 4, I think, I'm, if I'm not mistaken there. I have it down here in a, in a footnote. But John Calvin talked about it, as have others. 
so there are extremes here as there are with any doctrines, I guess, to be avoided. There's, there's the extreme of the, pre, the prelacy or could even be Episcopalianism or we, we've got a hierarchy. One above another, um, the, the papacy, things like that, um, which becomes tyrannical in exercise. I, I believe that I value a lot of brothers, even throughout history or even today, you know, who probably disagree with me, but the other extreme then on the opposite side would be that there are, that if we go to the opposite extreme, that we're saying everyone has the keys. Peter is just receiving, or as the apostles here, they're just receiving them. Everybody's got the keys. And what it does then, it destroys the distinction between those who are ruled and, and those who are, though, those ruled and those who are ruled. Okay. Now, again, this there should be a shepherding heart for those in leadership, but there is a submissive spirit to that subordinate authority given to the eldership in the church. And you probably say, well, who believes that, well, everybody's got the keys and all that. Well, John Cotton was a famous example. John Cotton wrote uh, a book in the mid-17th century called The Keys of the Kingdom of God. I think of the full title here somewhere. Yeah, John Cotton. It was, it, was, it was in the state, well, it wasn't called the United States at the time, but the New World. John Cotton, the keys of the kingdom of heaven the, and power thereof according to the word of God. So he would have been very much of a congregationalist persuasion, and he was very influential during the 1640s. During, and people say, well, why is the 1640 so important? You had the English Civil War, you had... You had war between Scotland and England, the bishops' war at the beginning of, of the decade. You have um, a lot of turmoil. You have the death of Charles I. And at that time, the Westminster Assembly comes, the Westminster Standards come out of that. Solomon Covenant of 1643, the Westminster Standards. And out of that decade, you have out of all that turmoil and all, all that debate and there was lots written. Samuel Rutherford wrote material on church government. There's another work that was that's in print at the moment by Naftali Press, the name escapes me right now, written by a number of um, London ministers. A lot was written on church government and the exercise of the keys during that period because Controversy. Controversy made everybody pay attention to the issue. And they wanted peace in the kingdom. They wanted a unified church. And um, and they were particularly afraid of congregationalism at the time. And, you know, prelacy as well. Now, John Cotton's understanding... Let's deal with congregationalism a little bit here. John Cotton's understanding, it seems to be from... His book is confusing for me, I'll be honest. Um, I, I try to be as fair as I possibly can, but he's not around anymore to ask him, what exactly did you mean there? Um, 
obviously, dear brother, he influenced, from what I understand, John Owen at the time. Um, but the understanding seems to be from Matthew 16, 18, Matthew 18, 17, that the keys were given to Peter because he was a believer. But if you look at different statements, he says sometimes he seems to make a distinction, key of, I think it was like a key of power, and then there's like a key of um, censure that there's different, he kind of has all these different keys that he has, which sadly waters down the distinction. Now let's, let's think now of, um, let's look at this text and see what, what we can come up with. So, and, and try and best understand it as best we can. Here's what Cotton wrote. The Christian church, though it were, it was not then extant, yet the apostles knew as well what he meant by church in Matthew eighteen seventeen, as they understood what he means by building his church upon the rock in Matthew sixteen eighteen. It was enough that apostles looked for a church which Christ would gather and build upon the confession of Peter's faith and being built should be endued with heavenly power in their censures, which they more fully understood afterwards, but have received the Holy Ghost. They came to put these practice these things into practice. So there's a number of different ways ecclesia, assembly, church as it could be translated, or assembly or congregation or whatever. It's translated different ways in the New Testament when you see it. Can be understood. Is it is it the, the visible church? All churches throughout the world that profess the true religion, who preach the gospel, etc., and so on, um, administer the sacraments. Is it the invisible church? Can't be that because this is a that would be very practical. Because if it's the invisible church, well, the the these are the visible representatives, and are the the church discipline is carried out. So it must be the visible church in some way, shape, or form. One thing has to be said as you going through Matthew 18. Not every single statement or every single thing in church discipline is laid out in black and white. For example, if, if little Tim is sins in... I don't know, in a certain area, gets drunk or something like that. What exactly do you follow up? Oh, you, you call him to repentance. I suppose it's not, probably not the greatest example because it's more of a public sin, but wisdom is needed. Here in Matthew 18 are general principles, and this is one of the reasons why you'll see rule books in different Presbyterian denominations. They'll have code books and stuff like that because they'll have gone through cases and they'll have to be updated as time goes on because life changes and all that. What we have is our general principles. And the general principle of Matthew 18 is this. It starts off private, and with each progressive stage, it becomes more and more public. So you tell the person privately, if it's a private sin, and, and if they repent, you don't say it to anybody else. If it's just a private sin, it depends on the nature of the sin. Um... But if they don't repent, 
get two or three more. And then, um, and then it goes even more, if the person does not repent, tell it to the church. Now, not every single minutia of the process, how long you take, do you give them three months to repent, six months, that's wisdom, that's prayer, that's um, you be as patient as possibly can. Uh, but it's not laid out there, is it? But what we start off with is private, and then it becomes more and more public with the censures if the person is unrepentant. And also remembering the whole point of church discipline is restoration. It's not to catch somebody in a gotcha moment or whatever else. Um, so it goes more and more public. So it starts off one, then it goes two or three, and then it goes to the church, goes to the widest number. This is what Matthew Poole said on this. Tell the church is no more than tell the multitude, make his crime more public. And we need to be careful that we don't read into the text. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter what your persuasion is, whether you are Episcopal, independent, <laughs> you know, Presbyterian, you know, more Dutch Reformed or, you know, whatever. You come to these texts and you got baggage, right? Let's face it. You, you look at these things. A lot of the way we understand Matthew 18 comes from other parts of the Bible and how we understand the keys and how we understand the structure of church government. So you can't just by itself say, ah, here's one verse. There's more of it. Here is more of a general principle. You're starting off public, private. It's more and more public as time goes on. But let's deal with um, there's that last verse that's commonly um, misused, where two or three are gathered together in my name. Um, I don't like... I feel weird sometimes doing critiques of... You know, I feel weird even when I do disagree sometimes with men like, you know, say George Gillespie or something like that. And that's going to happen. All right. You know, you go to the 17th century, you're not going to find everybody with the same exact doctrine laid out. It just doesn't happen. Okay. I praise God for the Westminster standards, by the way. Um, but during the 17th century, lots of stuff was written. It was written very fast. It was written. I would definitely agree with. George Gillespie's conclusions, he was a Scottish covenanter, but whether I would agree with his use of texts to support those positions, which I myself agree with, um, probably not. Um, his approach was from the point of view that he would go to, Matthew 18, 20 was a, was a big verse for him. And Discipline was in the hands of the elders, and he used in terms of dealing with the exercise of jurisdiction. I don't think that there's, you could make the argument, okay, where two or three are gathered together in my name. So in the previous verses, it's, it starts privately, then it gets more and more public, and then you're saying where two or three are gathered together in my name. It, it seems to sound like... Um, the argument could be made that 
two or three are gathered together in my name as representatives with regards to discipline. And that's kind of what you see in, you know, in, in church government. The elders are there to represent the congregation, by the way. Um, there's going to be differences of explaining these things. And there's going to be, I guess what I'm trying to say is be careful where we can always, you know, stack up our proof text, but be careful that this text or whatever the text is, is actually supporting your position. It could be a good position, but not, maybe that text doesn't necessarily uh, support it. Now, and I guess what I would say is disagree with some of the men in the past. I, I don't think our, our understanding of church, the church and the keys can be derived from these texts alone. It comes from other considerations and other parts of scripture. And these te this text alone simply gives us a general principle with a certain group of elders who are given the authority of the keys, a group of called men, men called by God to serve in his church, men to whom to re the, the rest of the body are to submit in such areas like the binding and loosing of sin. And, um, and prayer is needed to follow through in that. Um, oh yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Two or three witnesses against the crime. Yeah. That, that's what it's referencing to. Um, but the immediate context is to do with church discipline and it's quoting that. Yes. Two, but two or three to gather, get them in. Yes. That comes from the law. Um, but we have a kind of a sense of starts off private, becomes more and more public. And then, um, there is, I mean, the elders act as witnesses as well. So, um, and according to my own Presbyterian understanding of how church discipline should be done, it is, okay, it'll start off with the members and pray, you know, pray to God that it doesn't go any further. It doesn't need to usually most, most of the time church discipline can be simply a brother saying very, very quietly to another brother, uh, I don't know if you should be doing that. And then they repent and then it's over. So, now, I think another text that needs to be taken into account. Do we have time? It would be a shame to stop here, but I think I don't want to rush through it. Lord willing, we're going to go through Matthew 15. Or not Matthew 15. Uh, Acts 15. Acts 15 of the Council of Jerusalem. So that's for next time, next Tuesday, Lord willing. Um... The temptation is strong to keep going, um, but I need to be a good boy and uh, finish. <laughs> and um, yeah, so we will do, more needs to be looked at. I guess what I'm saying is not just Matthew 16, 18, uh, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, but also Acts 15. Because in Acts 15, you see in real life practice, the, the terms keys are not used there, but you see the exercise of the keys, the concept of it, and the authority which they have in terms of censures and so on. So, it, you, you, you know, it wouldn't be right to rush through that. If you've got any questions, I can promise you I will not have all the answers. 
Um, but I would encourage you, I would encourage you, especially those who, Presbyterian ministers, elders, whatever, we need to know why, we need to know what the power to keys are. In, in a practical way. Because, can you imagine what it would do for governing? Being careful to avoid the, that it must be according to Scripture, and it must be according to the model laid down by Christ, tender, loving, caring, um, what does a shepherd do with his sheep? It is not in a tyrannical fashion in any way, shape, or form. So hopefully that was an okay show back after about, I don't know, seven months. Um, so Lord willing, we'll be able to deal with, we dealt with more today than I expected. So next day we'll be looking at Acts 15, looking at exercise of the keys of the kingdom. I'll also be t touching other topics, but little by little. Um, again, if you've got articles, perhaps clips, or whatever you want me to review, megillofilms at gmail.com. This has been Paul Flynn. Talk to you again soon.